when we look at the story of the world, keep in your minds that the framework around the history of the world is, it is God's story. It is God who is behind all these events. He is the one steering this world and everything that happens on it. And as we come to this very, very important passage this morning in Luke chapter 2, the birth of our Lord Jesus on this earth, always keep in your mind the bigger picture. God is the one who is bringing all these things about. It is His plan of salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord says, I am watching over my word to perform it. God is very actively involved in the history of this world and also in your life today because you are part of what is happening here. And so as we come to God's word this morning, let's just turn for clarification and for a bit more filling in of that frame that I was speaking to about to who Jesus was. This little one we're going to be reading about today, this baby that was born. And for that I want you to firstly turn to Colossians chapter 1 for our first reading. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 to 23. When you read about this little baby that's born, this is who he's speaking about. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, For He that is God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He that is Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He, that is Jesus Christ, has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." So this little baby we're going to read about now in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to 7 is this Jesus who we've just described. The first and the last. The one whom everything comes from. And so with that parameter around this passage, let's now turn to Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to 7. 
Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The writer of this Gospel, Luke, takes great pains to give us the timing of these things, of all these happenings. Remember, he is writing a historical document to Theophilus to prove to him that this Jesus is the Messiah and that Theophilus' faith needs to be based in this Messiah. And so he takes great pains historically to put us in the picture of when this birth took place. And the Romans kept very precise records. And so by referring to these governors and who was in control at that time, he can pinpoint when exactly in history this took place. So timing is very, very important. And no one throughout history yet has been able to disprove Luke's statements here. They've tried, but they haven't succeeded because of the Roman records. God had this all in plan, you see. And so he says here that the census went out from Caesar Augustus. He put out a decree and he said there must be a census of the nation. And this census took place every 14 years according to the Roman tradition. It was a census of registration. That's what they said it was. A census of registration. But what it was in actual fact, it was a keeping of records so that the Roman government knew how much taxes they could bring in. So it was all about money. But it was also, secondly, all about military control. You see, they took the census and every man went up with his family and so they knew how many able men there were in the nation, how many men there were that could possibly come up against the Roman nation. And so it was a military exercise as well. They also at this stage took advantage of splitting up people, sending them back to their hometowns, and so splitting up possible hostile groups who were gathered uh, in opposition to the Romans. And by splitting them up in this way, they knew anyway at this stage, during the census, there would be an amount of peace. Who sent out the decree? Our text says it was Caesar Augustus. Now, if you're a history buff, you might know him in, under the alias of Gaius Octavius or Octavian. And he was part of the triumvirate together with Mark Anthony, who got, uh, Mark Anthony was the one who was infatuated with the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And if you've read and if you've um, done any of um, those great plays by Shakespeare, you will know that it's based on this specific account. But Julius 
Caesar was the great uncle involved in this, and everyone knows about Julius Caesar. He was the great uncle to Gaius Octavius, and he kind of took him under his wing and gave him this honorary title of Caesar Augustus. So there was a name change that took place. And the word Augustus, the name meant majestic, sublime, revered. And he took his younger family member under his wing and gave him this title. Now, Caesar Augustus, as you might have heard in some documents, was not a Christian, although he did try to bring good into the Roman government. He was a wise administrator. He was a really good organizer. He allowed the conquered provinces, of which Judah was one, a certain amount of autonomy. They could do, they could keep to their traditions, they could keep to their customs, as long as it didn't interfere with Roman law. That was always the big provision. But he made adultery a crime. He was a great builder of buildings. Don't confuse him with Herod. He was also a great builder of buildings. Augustus encouraged the arts. He encouraged literature in the Roman um, provinces. And he brought about relative peace. And so this was a good time. And he's remembered as being a good governor. Caesar Augustus. But he is the one who decrees there must be the census. And then Luke brings in another name. He says it was during the time of the governor of Cilicia, a province of Syria, a man called Quirinius. Now Quirinius doesn't have too much to do with the rest of the gospel story here, but it puts a historical pointer for Luke into his narrative. And so we know exactly going through Roman records when Quirinius was governor, he was a governor twice of Syria. He was a governor once, then there was a break, and then he became governor again. And it is during the second governorship that the census takes place. But little did these Romans know that what they were doing was bringing about a heavenly kingdom. You see, they thought it was all about taxes. They thought it was all about seeing how many people could possibly come against the Roman government. It was all about political control. But God was setting the stage for a much bigger event. And so when all the world, that is all the Roman world, all those subject to the governance of Rome, when they came together, the stage was set for the birth of the Saviour. You see, what had the Romans brought about? There are so many things here. But they brought about an infrastructure in the whole of the Roman Empire. There were modern roads built for those times. There were bridges. People could get from A to B really quickly. There was water laid on to the cities. There, were, there was great communication between the cities. And the Greek language was established as a means of communication. And so, when the gospel message comes about, it can spread rapidly right through the Roman Empire. Man has his plans. The Lord directs his steps. You see, God was watching over his word to perform it, even in this time. So let's join Joseph and Mary now as in the second bit of this passage, verse 4, we find that they travel up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth through to Bethlehem. Now I'm sure Joseph and Mary, if those of you who have been parents before, will, will uh, conf concur with this. I'm sure Mary and Joseph could have done without this big trip when Mary is so late in her pregnancy. And that's not in a nice Cadillac, it's not in a nice car, it was on the back of a donkey. 
And you ladies, you'll really go with Mary in this. Late pregnancy, and now I've got to make an 80-mile trip. It's a rugged trip going from Galilee. It's a mountainous area they've got to go through all the way up to Bethlehem. It was a dangerous road. There were robbers along the road, as there always were. Fortunately, it was summertime. Thank you to God's provision for that. They didn't have to travel in winter, because many times during winter they wouldn't be able to travel. The land was unpassable. But so Joseph and Mary, even though their plans might have been a little different, they had to take this trip. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. I'm sure Joseph had other plans. I'm sure Mary had other plans at this stage in their life. But God knew what had to happen, and so he moves men's hearts, and they set off on their journey. You see, there was Old Old Testament prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Yes, some of it had already been fulfilled. What were they? Let's just look very quickly at those. Genesis 3.15 and Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 speaks about this Old Testament prophecy where this one who was to be born, the Messiah, had to be a human being. He had to be made like his brothers so that we as human beings could follow in his steps. No, he wasn't an angel as some later said. That is a myth. He had to be human. Genesis 3.15 Secondly, he had to be a Jew, not a Gentile. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 to 2 says he would be of Abraham. And that was a genetic offspring of Abraham. This Jesus had to be a Jew. Thirdly, he had to be of the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 said that from this nation of Judah, the scepter shall not depart. And it was pointing to the Messiah who had to come from this very specific tribe of Judah. And so we see these three things are already fulfilled. He had to be of the family of David. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 to 7 says that God had a covenant with King David. That this kingdom would be established in his line. And we know from Joseph's side that Jesus is an heir of David. He is from David's line. He had to be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 said, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us as men. And so these Old Testament prophecies had to be fulfilled. And then, very excitedly too, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Do you see how specific the prophecy was? 700 years ago, this prophecy was given that he had to be born in Bethlehem. Very interestingly, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Now think about, I am the bread of life. Small details, but nothing goes unnoticed. God is in control. He is the one fulfilling his word. And so they travel up to the house of bread, Bethlehem, and that is where Jesus would be born. Joseph goes up with 
his wife to be registered and specifically with his wife. He takes her. He doesn't just go up on his own. He takes Mary to go up with him to be put on the Roman record and that will later help to prove that Jesus was born when the skeptics came and said this just didn't happen. It was on Roman record. All in God's plans. Do you see? It's amazing. And as happens after nine months and in God's plan, verses 6 and 7 the time comes for Mary to give birth. It was God's precise time, His precise place where this birth takes place. And she gives birth to her firstborn son. And I just want to stop there a minute. He was born of God, but he was born of man. And he had brothers and sisters. And it's recorded in the records for us. His brothers were James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. And Scripture also says that Jesus had sisters. We don't know how many, but he had them. But he was the firstborn son. And when you go and read that passage, it's got a capital S in it, not in the original document, but pointing to that this firstborn son was the Messiah. This was a special one born, Jesus Christ. And as they did those days, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, strips of linen, and that was possibly, I don't know I'm a man, but I've read up these things, um, this was possibly to keep, make the baby feel secure, to keep him warm, and um, to keep him from injuring himself with his little arms and little nails. If you've seen a little baby born, fantastic. But he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laid in a manger. Now if you've seen little pictures on postcards and on um, all kinds of little cards you can buy these days, Christmas cards, you'll see that Jesus is lying in this Nice little wooden thing with straw and hay and there's like lights and it looks all warm. Well, that's not quite the picture we have. He was born in a manger and tradition tells us this was probably a stone feeding trough. And it was probably inside a cave. That's where shepherds often went and kept the animals. And so he would have been laid in a stone feeding trough and yes, they would have put a bit of hay in them to make it soft for him and as hospitable as possible. No, he wasn't born in a warm hospital. No, he wasn't born in a nice, comfortable home. He was born in very lowly circumstances. And there's a reason for that, you see. We'll come to that now. There's a reason for that. And the sad thing was that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, but no place was found for them. You see... Bethlehem was very busy. It was very filled with people. There were people coming there for the census. The Roman soldiers and officials were there, the ones taking up the census, and they had to be put up in these inns. And there was no place for the Messiah of the world to lay his, his head. I wonder if it would have made a difference if they had known who this was. I think not somehow. Because you just have to look at today's society and there is still no place for this Messiah. But the greatest miracle of all, when God becomes man and God comes to earth and it's God with man, it happens quietly, it happens in an ordinary stable and in an obscure village. And what's the reason for that? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake 
He became poor that you through His poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus wasn't born in earthly splendor. He was born in a lowly stable in very humble conditions so that all men could come to Him. It didn't just have to be the rich. Any person could come to Him and He would save. And God brought that about so that it happened exactly like this. And yet we see through all this that in those little details God's at work. Jesus is born in the grounds of an inn where there are a lot of people. And so His birth would have been noticed. And it would have gone on record when Joseph went with Mary for that census. And that would have stopped those who would say it didn't happen. God had all this in hand. And Jesus is born in that lowly place. Now that's all we're going to look at in this passage this morning. And we're going to carry on next time in looking at what was the response to this and what was the announcement. But there are some implications for you and I of just these seven verses in Scripture. This momentous account put so quietly in Scripture as well. These are seven verses written about Jesus' birth. What are the, the implications for you and I? What are the implications for you and I of the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, born in human form? What are the implications? Now, books and books and books and volumes have been written on this. So I'm not going to try and cover that question all this morning. But I want us just to go to one passage and look at some of the implications of Jesus born on earth for you and I. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Turn there with me if you would. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. One of the major implications of Jesus' birth for us is, if He wasn't born, we would have no faith. If He wasn't born, there would be no way back to God for us. We would still be lost in our sin. Mankind would have no hope at all. But Jesus Christ did come. And this is the reason He came. He came to walk before us. He came to be a man and to walk the road before you and I, so that we could have a way back to God, but so that we could follow in His steps and know how to walk and find that way. And so how are we to live? And how has Christ shown us how to live? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was born as a little baby in a manger. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now there are sermons in there, and I'm not going to stop there now. But he was, but being found in appearance as a man, look what he did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the sea, and that every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus went ahead of us. He went to show us a way. What did He do? He emptied Himself of His Godness. And in some way, we can't explain it, He can. He remained God while He became man. But He didn't say, I am God, I refuse to become like a human being. Those filthy creatures there on that earth, I will not become one of them. No, He emptied Himself and He became a man like you and I. He was fully man like you and I, yet fully God. And then what did He do? He, he became humble, even to the point of death. And He calls you and I to follow in His steps. He says, imitate me. You be humble too. You've been put on the earth for a purpose. Be humble like me. I did it to go before you and show you the way. I was obedient even to the point of death, verse 8. You be obedient to my Father, even to the point of death. And then what will happen? Well, what did God do to me? God exalted Him. And the war was won. The battle is won for you and I. And now He says to you and I, God will exalt you in the right time too. But follow in my steps. Don't give up on your walk during this earth. Follow in my steps. God will exalt you at the right time. You see, we are called to victorious living. Victorious Christian living because of what Christ has done. This little baby who was born in this manger, he shows us the way and he calls us to victorious living. And then it says, last bit of that verse, of that passage, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, Jesus came to show mankind that whether they want to or not, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord. But He gives us the opportunity to do so because of a love for Him. And that love He puts in our hearts. And then He says, follow me. What about you today? Are you as a believer, and I'm speaking to believers here now, are you following in the steps of this little baby, the Messiah? Are you following in His steps? Has your tongue confessed? Does your tongue confess His name? Is your need bow to Him? And do you bow your need to Him daily? That's what He's called us to. Those are just some of the implications of Him becoming man. But now to return to our passage in Luke. When we look at these circumstances of God working in history, God bringing about these very specific circumstances the question comes up to you and I, are we encouraged by this? When we see the sovereign God at work, when we see Him determining His plan through history, are we encouraged by that? We are all going through various things in our lives. Some good, some bad. Some disastrous, some fantastic. But through all that, there is a sovereign God at work. Are you encouraged by that? That this God of the universe, who ordered history as we saw earlier, who ordered history from before the creation of the world, right through the history of the world up to today, and right through into the future until Jesus comes again, this sovereign God is at work in your life too. 
and it doesn't matter what happens in your life, God knows about it. His hand is there. He is putting those puzzle pieces together. He's got the big picture in mind. We only see a small little part of it. Are you encouraged by a sovereign God at work? And the second question I have to ask you on that, when you look back on your life, do you see God at work? Because sometimes it's only when we look back and we see what has happened in our lives, do we see God at work? When we look ahead of us, all we see is massive wave, lots of wind, and we don't know which way to go. But when we look back on our lives, we see God's hand at work. Are you encouraged by that? Because if you are, then turn and look at your troubles again and know that the same sovereign God who was there for you in the past will be there for you in those very steps you've got to take into those dark circumstances. Take courage. This little baby who was born made that possible for you. What is the incarnation, that is God becoming man, what does that tell us about the character of God? And I want to test you a little bit. John 3.16 Who can say that with me? We should all be able to say that, shouldn't we? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world, stop. Let's say that again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish or die but have everlasting life. What do we learn about God? Because of His love. God sent Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 2, this little baby. And so what is our response to that? You see, this great sovereign God who has all these things in control, He is a loving God to you and I as believers. And if you're not a believer here today, He is a God of judgment to you, but His love stretches out to you too and it says, Come to me, all you are weary. Come to me and find rest. Find the living waters. Come and find life. He stretches out His love to you too. This is the God we are speaking about who brought this about, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a third question we can ask ourselves when we look at this passage and that's this. That after 2,000 plus years of publicity about Jesus Christ, we've got His Bible, the Word is given to us, we've got historical documents right down to the Roman records speaking about the birth of Jesus Christ, even our calendar is based on that. After 2,000 plus years of publicity, does the church, that is you and I, do we take this amazing involvement of God with us for granted? Do we take it for granted? How will we know that? Well, how urgent is our sense of evangelism? How how urgent is this need in you to share the gospel message with your colleagues at work, with your family that don't know the Lord? Do you take this coming to earth of God with man, do you take it for granted? You see, the world really takes time to really look and see what this Jesus is all about. And when they do get past Santa Claus and when they do get, get past the parting of Christmas when this little baby Jesus came, if they stop and look at this Jesus, often 
they'll only see one who was a great teacher among many, as Islam says. And we've got to ask ourselves this question, after a hundred years of God's faithfulness to us here at Wanganui East as well, is the reason the world doesn't see Jesus for who He is, is it perhaps also our fault as church? And I speak church worldwide now. God's Word tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, this is what we are to do. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the, for the hope that is in you, yet doing it in gentleness and respect. And then he carries on in Philippians. And we are to do this as children of God who are shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, if we still see God with us as important to us as church, as a church here at Wanganui East, we would go and shine as bright lights in the midst of the community. And the question is, do we? Or do we blend in so well that we become like that moth that is camouflaged with its background and unless they really investigate carefully and see a Bible lying around, if they do in the house, do they know that we are believers? How urgent is your sense of those that are lost and that need a saviour? Do you take God coming to earth for granted? You see, Jesus left heaven and He came to this earth to engage with the world. And we are to imitate Him. We are to do the same. And if you're a believer here today, you are to engage with the world. And yes, you'll have difficult questions coming your way, but you answer them to the best of your ability and with the help that the Holy Spirit will give you. And if you still don't know, you say to them, I'll get back to you. And you go and study and then get back with those answers. The world wants these answers. We are to engage with the world. Jesus came for that purpose. As you're sitting here this morning, how do you see this little baby who came as your saviour? Do you perhaps see him as an interesting person? There might be some here who do. Do you maybe see him as just a great teacher? Or maybe one who fits into your life at Christmas time and Easter time? One, when you do your religious stuff, then you'll think about Jesus. Or is he to you today the saviour? Is he today to you your saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can make a way for you back to God? How do you see this little baby that we've just read about? The problem is with many of us and with the world as it was in this passage here today, is the word busyness. Not business. Busyness. I very well know that word as a pastor. Busyness. It's the greatest enemy of the believer. It is the greatest enemy, one of the greatest enemies of the world. They are so busy, they don't see the Saviour. We as believers are so busy that we don't have place in our busy lives for the Saviour. I need to ask you, from teenagers sitting here, right till the oldest member, do you have time for this Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Or has He been shunted out of your life because you're busy? 
And yes, you might have a busy social life. Yes, you might have so many activities that you've got to get around to, whether they're at work or whether they're at school. Yes, you might have sport and other interests. And yes, you might have a family and they take up all your time. But do you have time for the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? I know... I don't get to my daily readings as I should. And I confess to you as a pastor here, I need to do that better. But I need to show you that weakness to encourage you in your weakness. Let's make time for Jesus Christ in our lives again. He's not just someone we just paste onto our lives. He's to be integral in our lives. He's to come out of everything that we do in our lives. But do we give Him the time of day? You see, this baby Jesus is no longer in this crib that we've just read about. He's no longer in that stony manger. He is now seated at the right hand of God in majesty and He is at the right hand of the power of God, says Luke chapter 22, verse 69. He has got all power in His hand now. This is the Jesus we are speaking about. This is the Jesus that we shunt aside for our other activities. What does He offer you and I? He offers us everlasting life. And what does He free us from? He frees us from everlasting death. And then we just kind of go by Him. It was through His death on the cross, it was through His resurrection that we'll be, that we'll be commemorating next Sunday that He made a way for us. He, Jesus Christ, this little baby we've spoken about here, is Almighty God and He is preparing to return again for you and I. Are you ready for His return? Or are you, will you be too busy to even notice? I can tell you that won't happen. I really want to encourage you as a pastor. And I'm speaking to myself too. We are to get less busy and more focused on Jesus Christ. The times are short. The time is urgent. You see, now instead of us looking on His meekness as He lies as a baby in the manger, He is looking on our weakness every day as we struggle. And I really want to encourage you in this. This great God who is now at the right hand of God the Father, He is also the great shepherd for you and I. He looks on us as we go through our daily struggles. He looks on you and I as those, the wind and the waves come over you and you don't know which way to turn. And He says, come with me. I will take you to green grass. I will take you to a place where you can find pasture. I will take you to a place where you can find nourishment for your soul. He looks on you now. He is all-powerful. You are the weak one. He is no longer the, weak, the meek little baby lying there in his manger. Is this the Jesus that you know in your life? When I look in my Bible, I see that after verse 7, there's verse 8. That's great, you know. Because it didn't end there, did it? The story of God through the Lord Jesus Christ didn't end with Him wrapped in swaddling clothes. This was only the beginning of God's work. And it's reached right through history, through generation upon generation of believer, and it's reached right through to us here. And next week we'll be remembering how God's work has carried on for 100 years in this church. You see, that story of Jesus Christ, the one we've just been reading about, 
has carried on and it's carried on and it will carry on until Jesus Christ comes again. We are part of a living hope. We are not a religion. Christianity is a faith-based way of life. And God will be faithful to Himself from generation until generation until Jesus Christ comes again. That is the sovereign God at work. And as you saw the history going past you on the screen earlier, we are part of that history. We landed up there somewhere kind of three quarters of the way through. Because it will still carry on. This great Jesus Christ is coming again for you and I. But how will He find us? How will He find you and I? Will we try and stop Him and say, Lord, I've got a busy schedule now. Our timetable is out here. Could you perhaps come back next week? It's not going to be that busy. When He appears, you will get less busy. And you will get very busy on your knees giving Him glory. Because then everything will be put in perspective for you. And you will realize who this great Jesus is, this little baby we've read about. But I urge you this morning, get your life on track with Him. And if you need to make modifications to your life, do it. And if people tell you, and I'm one of those who might tell you this, hey, but we really need, you say to me, I need to get my life back on track. But don't use as an excuse, please. Get your life back on track. And if you are, then I won't come at you again to say, but we need all these things done. We need to get our lives sorted out with Him. We need to get our lives back on track so that Jesus Christ is at the center of our lives. I plead with you. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ here today, and there might be some, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you, get to know this little baby who is now at the Father's right hand, the all-powerful Messiah. Get to know Him before the time runs out for you, because when He appears, you cannot change your mind and say, Now, Lord, please save me. It will be too late. Come to Him today. We've given you the Gospel message again. After the service, we'll give you time. If you want to come and speak to someone, come and speak to us and ask us, how can I make my life right with God? We will take you through what Scripture says and then we will allow the Holy Spirit to, allow, to work in you. But come to Him today. Don't leave it. Tomorrow is not a day that you might have. It might not be there for you. Come to Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, our Heavenly Father, in Your Word, You give us these seven verses we've looked at this morning. And though they are just seven verses in print in our Bibles, they contain so much because this was God becoming man. And although we can't understand it, Lord, we know that this happened that you were born of a virgin, that you were a baby. But, but Lord, you grew up from there and then you started your mission on this earth and eventually you were put to death, but you didn't stay dead. You, you were raised up again on the third day and therefore we have hope. Lord, forgive us when in our attitudes towards you We have shown that maybe Jesus is just this baby, 
nothing more. And Lord, forgive us too when we've been too busy in our lives for you. Help us to get our priorities back on track. To have you at centre of our lives again. Number one, above all else. And then to see how you show us how to walk the walk every day. And how you will use us mightily among our family, among our friends, among our colleagues. Keep us faithful to you, we pray, so that you will be glorified.